Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to Loving Liberty. Glad you could join me. I'd love to hear from you, too. If you'd like to join the conversation, 801-331-8113. I really thought about trying to make some sense out of uh, what happened on Super Tuesday, but uh, I'm stuck with two things. Number one, I don't understand it, so we'll start with that. And secondly, my carometer, I'm looking at it, I'm, I'm looking right at it, the needle is not moving. I guess I'm just not that emotionally invested, but uh, it sounds like it was a very interesting day. I don't, re- I don't remember a time when, when I've seen so many people fall on their swords, figuratively, for the sake of the party, or at least the establishment wing of the party. But uh, Joe Biden carried the day, although uh, I noticed uh, he did have a press conference uh, earlier today where he announced he's dropping out of the race and endorsing Joe Biden. Huh? Actually, if you've been following some of his uh, some of his latest gaffes <laughs> at uh, various public appearances, eh, yeah, it's it's some tongue in cheek humor, but it's it's not that far from reality. I really, I, I honestly feel some pity for the guy, just because. Look, I can't imagine the stress that a person would have to endure of not only being in the spotlight constantly with people, like yours truly, watching to see and make fun of any gaffe that you make. But he also has to deal with, you know, there are people who approach him. I I saw a a couple of military veterans approach him and ask him, you know, why did you support the Iraq war? And they they said, you, that's your war. You own it. You were a supporter of it. We have friends. We have brothers and sisters who died. And there were, you know, thousands of Iraqis who died. And you need to take responsibility for it. And I mean, they're insistent. This is one of the things that that lets you know politics. Politics is not for the faint-hearted. People who don't have thick skin, man, you're not going to last a minute because, you know, part of the requirement is uh, not only do you have to get out there and, you know, kiss babies. Joe, easy, that's enough. Joe, Joe, stop kissing the babies. But you also have to be able to stand there while people tell you to your face you are 10 pounds of manure in a 5-pound bag and you take it. You just, you have to take it. Definitely not something most people would be interested in. So I don't know what I don't know what happens from here. I don't consider myself a a seasoned enough prognosticator and I don't care deeply enough at this point because I. I've come to see politics and, and elections in general as little more than a reassurance ritual by which the ruling class helps us maintain this illusion that, oh, yeah, yeah, you guys have a say in stuff. And then they go and do exactly as they want to do. Now, if that sounds defeatist, uh, let me assure you, that doesn't mean, therefore, I'll just do whatever they tell me. Oh, heck no. I will live my life as freely as I possibly can. Now, that means I have to weigh some risks here and there. Because there are definitely politicians out there who are doing everything they can to, to bring me to heel. So there's a bit of a contest of wills here. In the words of Henry David Thoreau, you know, the state was not born with superior knowledge or superior morality or even superior power. So he says, if it comes down to a contest of the wills, let's see who is stronger. And that's kind of the approach I feel like taking as well. 
One thing that I do think we can draw from this, and there was a terrific article on Reason from Eric Boehm. If you have been worried that, well, you know, these guys with money, these billionaires like uh, like Bloomberg and uh, what's his name, Tom Steyer, they spent a lot of money. Michael Bloomberg spent, I believe the estimate is about half a billion dollars in his bid for a Super Tuesday Blitz. And he came away with, uh, what, American Samoa. Woo, that was, hey, that was some well-spent money. But the point here is, it's the idea that you can just buy your way into office. Maybe not so true. I mean, come on. We saw this with, with Ross Perot back in, what, 1992? He was a billionaire. Oh, he's going to just buy his way in. But he couldn't. Donald Trump, I know there were, there were accusations. Well, is he just going to buy his way in? Well, even if he had tried, he had so much aligned against him in terms of the media and the political establishment. First of all, telling us it's a joke. It's a joke. He's going to drop out any day. He's never going to run. He's, you know, this is not going to last. And then as the day grew closer and closer and Trump kept gaining and gaining and eventually became the Republican nominee. Well, it's not going to matter because nobody supports him. He's a terrible person. Look at this misogynist, racist, rah, 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 rah. And they believed it going into election night right up until those 270 electoral votes were were captured. And I think he got a few more beyond that. And it became clear that, no, actually, Trump is going to be your president. And even now, they still can't accept it. At least many of them. (laughs) They're still trying to, no, no, I reject your reality. I'll substitute my own. I don't want to face this. But the bottom line here is money in politics, yeah, it, it does drive politics, but maybe not so much the election side, at least not like we think. I agree there's money driving politics, but I think it's far more on the side of it's it's used to channel influence in favorable directions or to make sure that uh, favorable legislation is properly enacted by this uh, congressman or or senator who's friendly to this special interest, you know, over here. Tell me what you think. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to the show. Do you hear that noise? I don't. What am I supposed to be hearing? It must be my phone. Let me call you back here. Okay. Ah, uh, we had some, you know what? We had some trouble yesterday with somebody hearing some some noise on the phone. I don't know what it is. I don't know if I've got an electronic bug here or not. But you know what? I am somewhat experienced in this thing known as percussive maintenance. So let me do this. I'll just do a quick unplug, and then plug it back in. And I bet you it works this time. All right, let's try it again. Better? No, still here. No, I'm I'm here now. I'm hearing it, and I have no idea what it's coming from. It's you got a little bit of a whine or something going on there? Yeah, it sounds like a loud uh, horn going. All right, well I'll have to try again. I guess. Okay. Yeah, my apologies. I I don't have a clue what it is. Yes, we'll we'll shut the whole thing down during the break and and see if we can. Uh, can come up with something for it. I, I would like to hear from you, though. Well, after the break, let me share a couple of thoughts here from Eric Bohm's article. He says, not all the results are reported yet, but the former New York City mayor, Michael Bloomberg, appears on track to finish first in exactly zero of the 14 states that held primaries and caucuses on Tuesday night. Now, he did win the caucuses in American Samoa, picking up four delegates 
and he appears to have picked up a few delegates in Colorado, and he might get a few more in California or Texas. But Eric Bohm says still it is impossible to, to view Tuesday's results as anything other than a major disappointment for the billionaire who dumped five, nine figures, rather, of his personal fortune into the race. He saturated the airwaves with his ads. He hired more than 2,500 people to work on his campaign. He skipped the first few states of the nominating process, apparently not believing that his air support would do what other candidates' ground troops could not, or believing that his air support would do what their ground troops couldn't. And for a while, it looked like it might have been working, but his debate performances partially deflated his rise. Tuesday's expensive failure has actually forced him out of the race. I believe he did suspend his campaign earlier today. Oh, and the other billionaire in the Democratic primary, that would be Tom Steyer, the guy who dropped out three days ago after spending more than $250 million and winning exactly zero delegates. And Eric Bohm says, you know, it must be fashionable for Democrats, and if polls are to be believed, many Republicans, too, to believe that something must be done about the supposedly intolerable influence of money in American politics. Now, there is a lot of money in American politics as the ongoing Democratic primary and, well, frankly, every election within recent memory makes clear. But after Super Tuesday, it seems pretty clear that candidates cannot buy their way into the White House. Former Vice President Joe Biden, who appears to have been the big winner on Tuesday, had fundraising issues during the primary campaign. He was outspent not only by Bloomberg and Steyer, but also by Senator Bernie Sanders. Biden won Tuesday's primaries in Minnesota and Massachusetts while spending hardly any money in either place. Now, Sanders, back at a rally in mid-February, said, We believe in old-fashioned democracy. One person, one vote. Not billionaires buying elections. Well, good news for Sanders. Billionaires aren't buying this election. As Eric Baum says, money at best buys you a ticket to the dance, but it cannot make you the prom king. So something to keep in mind. I mean, this is this doesn't mean, OK, we can go back to sleep, but at least you can you can rest a little bit easier that it takes something more. And, and maybe this is even sinister. I don't know. Maybe this is the bad news. One thing that I have to say, I'm very impressed that uh, the Democrats have closed ranks like they have around Joe Biden. I don't know what their end game is, but it's pretty crazy how the memo goes out and certain people drop out and decide, okay, we're now out of the race. And what that means for the coming election in November, I guess we can only guess. Personally, though, just my for what it's worth, my hunch is if Trump goes up against Biden, it's not even going to be close. I think Trump has this one in the bag. That doesn't mean get complacent, but he's looking pretty strong. All right, we are back. 801-331-8113. Go ahead, Rob. Give it another try. I shut it all down. Applied liberal percussive maintenance to the phone receiver. Then I called it myself on my cell phone, and everything sounded hunkadory on on my end. So, give it a call eight zero one three three one eighty one thirteen. I know that uh, a lot of people are uh, starting to catch on to hey, there's a, there's a little preparedness craze sweeping across the country, and it's primarily what toilet paper, <laughs> drinking water, sanitary wipes, hand sanitizer, face masks, you know, things that I guess uh, we presume would be handy in the case of an epidemic or a pandemic. 
But, uh, man, I don't know if you have seen the footage of this tornado that went through Memphis, or I'm sorry, Nashville, Tennessee, uh, the other night. Holy cow. 24 people confirmed dead, 50 people still missing. The devastation is unbelievable. The footage is unbelievable. And I'm, I'm really not trying to scare you. This is not an attempt to get you to feel fearful about something else, you know, besides the disease. Now these incredible killer storms are, are going to come and, and, you know, take you away. But my point here is if you aren't already thinking in terms of personal preparedness, and I don't know how you prepare for an F3 tornado coming through town and you know leveling everything and apparently this was a very very destructive one it did an immense amount of damage but it's good to have a plan whether that means okay we have a storm shelter in case there was something like this i have a 72 hour kit or a bug out bag that i could go to or for that matter i just have a plan with family members that if something happens we know this is how we're going to get a hold of each other. If the telephones are down, this is where we're going to meet up as soon as we possibly can. Maybe having some first aid training. You know, are you CPR certified? Do you have something? How, how about this? A water filter. Something simple. A little water filter that could fit in your pocket. Or a life straw or something like that. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to peddle a particular brand of fear here, but I'm just saying... The time to be prepared is before anything bad happens. And it doesn't matter if you're prepared 10 years in advance of anything happening. Better that than one second too late. The unexpected is going to come. There are going to be things that are out of our control. So mitigate what you can. Focus on controlling those things that you have some control over. And just understand, your very best still isn't going to be good enough to keep nature completely at bay, whether it's in the form of a virus, whether it's in the form of a storm, an earthquake, whatever the case may be. I hope that doesn't sound fatalistic, but I hope it uh, it also points out there's a lot more you can be doing to prepare than just simply, you know, going and buying out all the toilet paper and all the bottled water at Costco or, or Walmart. All right, moving on. Here's one that caught my eye. I'm always kind of aware that, uh, you know, the surveillance state just never stops. Trying to explain this to my kids, you know, um, not trying to tell them, yeah, it was great. We could get away with stuff when I was a kid, but um, there weren't nearly as many cameras everywhere. And what that means is, you know, if, if something happened, you know, it was rare that somebody would have a camera that could catch, you know, what whatever went on. Nowadays, anything. You jaywalked? Well, yeah, the uh, security cameras at the store here and, you know, the guy's uh, ring doorbell caught you uh, jaywalking. And my goodness, you could be held accountable for that. But this is the one that really makes me go, hmm, I'm not sure how I feel about this, but it's not good so far. It's going to take some convincing to show me that, hey, this is really a good idea and it makes us all safer. It's an article from Washington Times. Big Brother Grows Alarmingly Bigger, One Automated License Plate Reader at a Time. And here's the gist of it. Once upon a time, America was free. Now, it's not so free. And this story out of Coral Gables, Florida, about a man's fight to rid his community of a privacy-dinging, constitutionally questionable automated license plate reader program helps explain why this is so. In 2018, a man living in Coral Gables named Raul Mas Canosa 
filed a lawsuit against the city, the State Department of Law Enforcement, and the Florida Department of State, claiming his constitutional rights were being infringed because of the thousands of times local authorities have taken photos of his vehicle over the years. Absent any reason, absent any suspicion of wrongdoing, and more importantly, absent any court order or warrant. So why the photos? Well, Coral Gables is a community that participates in an automated license plate reader program, whereby drivers are subjected to random, unannounced, and ongoing photographing by government officials. So cameras are mounted on traffic lights, on street poles, on police cruisers. Snap, snap, snap the data on drivers, which includes the pictures of the plates. The vehicles, the drivers, the passengers are all sucked into a software system that's analyzed and red flagged for criminal behaviors, outstanding warrants, and sought after suspects. And then it's shared. Now, the data is shared with pretty much any and all requesting government agencies and authorities and, well, who knows who else. Marketing companies, maybe. Private insurers, maybe. The FBI, oh, most definitely. Caleb Kruckenberg, Kruckenberg rather, an attorney with the new Civil Liberties Alliance who's leading the litigation for Canoza's case, said in a sit-down interview at the Washington Times for the Bold and Blunt podcast that the city's automated license plate reader, or ALPR, program requires the data to be sent to an outlet in Virginia called Vigilant Solutions. But from there, it's any guess where that data goes. He says, we're in the discovery phase of the lawsuit uh, right now, explaining they're still not clear on what information is being gathered from drivers, what it's being used for, where it's going, who has access, and so forth. But he has learned this. The number of images the city has collected in the last three years, 101 million. This is one city. Of what? Well, you get the car, you get the driver usually, and there's metadata associated with the image. So it says this time, this location, going this direction. Okay? So what's it all mean? Well, it means that government authorities in this Florida community and elsewhere, thanks to the policy of sharing, have at their disposals the means to track citizens' whereabouts any time these citizens take to the road. Now, police, and certainly police have a case here, say, well, we need real-time information because it can help us react to kidnappings or car thefts or child abductions, even terrorism or on-the-run murder suspects. Yeah, safety first, they say, and indubitably safety for the citizens is a good thing, but at what cost? At what price for individual freedoms? At what peril to the Constitution? Think about this. A government that can track your movements can tell, for instance, when you go to the doctors, and perhaps what for. When you go to a bar and how long you stay. When you take a vacation and where. And perhaps how long you stay. How long your home is empty. Now what about a hack attack on all that? There are some would-be and burglars who would love a whack at that last set of data, no doubt. But think of the road of unintended consequences. What about the idea of the government knowing you attend an NRA meeting or an addiction 12-step program? See, these are serious concerns that just skip around the edges of all the privacy concerns with ALPR programs. There are more, many more, but that doesn't get to the heart of the matter with these automatic license plate reader programs, the one that outright flips the Constitution on its head. The one that goes like this. In America, citizens are innocent until proven guilty. This isn't China. And this shouldn't be Big Brother. What gives the government the right to surveil citizens without cause, without warning, without warrant? 
Cheryl Chumley, who's the author of this article, says maybe it's time to set some parameters here and make clear that, yes, police have a job to do, and yes, citizens have a right to be safe from wandering criminals, but... There's a way security can be upheld in this country without calling for cameras over every citizen's shoulder and without giving government the ability to know every citizen's every move, every minute of every day. See, the standard used to be the Fourth and Fifth Amendments. Well, apparently, that ship has sailed. But at the least, authorities can now be required to tell citizens where is this data being collected, what's being collected, who has access, and why. See, in a country that's supposedly free, that should be obvious. In fact, in a country that's free, we shouldn't even have to go to court to ask. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after these news headlines. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, thanks again for joining us. This is the Loving Liberty Program. Big shout out to our friends listening to us live on KTalk 1640 in Salt Lake City. And elsewhere across the Loving Liberty Radio Network. And for those of you joining us from the podcast realm, which apparently extends uh, pretty much worldwide. I was uh, I was looking at some of our numbers and, and some of our statistics and analytics uh, just the other day. We have uh, we have 98 percent of our listeners in the United States. OK, no big surprise there. But the remaining two percent are spread out over about uh, I, I think by my count, I've got about three dozen, maybe maybe closer to uh, to 40 different countries around the world. And I mean, it is all over the place, from Belarus to Nigeria and uh, and many other places as well. Now, I understand. This is not, you know, like I've got regular listeners there. Oh, yeah. Some Nigerian prince is no doubt listening right now thinking, I really like this guy. I like him so much I'm going to send him an offer for a million dollars. All he has to do is send me his bank account and I will uh, I will just wire the money to him. What? Stranger things have happened. Why couldn't it happen for me? 801-331-8113. So tiny homes. You probably heard talk about these things. And I got to tell you, when my when my wife and I talk about, well, are we considering a move? And, and by the way, this is not me announcing, yes, I'm getting ready to move on yet again. But um, let's face it. I, I'm looking at, at, at life. I'm looking at the stage of life where we are and realizing both my wife and I have uh, parents who are aging. My mom is well into her 80s. My wife's parents are well into their 70s. And we want to be closer. We want to be able to help them as they start to uh, enter, you know, their their golden years. Maybe they're already there. But see, I'm an optimist. And there's nothing that intimidates me worse than the idea of a move. And it's because I I confess I'm an accumulator. And I guess I got this from my mom, and I know she got it from her parents. When my grandparents passed away, uh, my mom and her, her siblings went through my grandparents' house and, you know, had to clear everything out of it. Now, my grandparents didn't live like hoarders. Everything was put away. Everything was neatly stored. But they said it was the most remarkable thing. Because my grandparents got married 
right in the depths of the Great Depression. I mean, like 1933 is when they tied the knot, and they, they lived through the very worst of the Great Depression. And because of this and the impact that it had on their psyche, they would not throw away things that could be useful. So what this means is every, every pair of broken shoelaces, they neatly wound them up or knotted them up and saved them just in case they might come in handy at a later time. Now, again, this wasn't stuff that was, you know, just sitting out around the house. You didn't have to wind your way through islands of old newspapers and things like that. They kept a neat house, but they didn't turn loose of stuff. Paper bags that, that back when you used to get your groceries in, in paper bags, all of them neatly folded, stored away. But they would not turn loose of anything if it had potential to be useful. And I know my mom picked up on this. She kind of collects things, too, because I guess more for sentimental value and because she um, she really likes to, to celebrate family. So my grandpa hides dental cabinet, uh, some furniture that he had built himself when he was going to be a carpenter or a, a woodworker before he became a dentist. It means a lot to her. She'd like it to mean a lot to us, but... You know, along the way, I've picked up that idea that, well, you know, if it might come in useful, I better hang on to it. And what that means is um, I accumulate. The longer I sit in one place, the more stuff I accumulate. And when it's time to move, I just wish I could vanish into the Twilight Zone or the Bermuda Triangle and never return. It's that overwhelming. So the idea of tiny homes actually appeals to me in the sense that it would be a lot harder to be an accumulator like that. And there's all there are some other benefits to this as well. There are there are some problems that are seriously solved through tiny homes. In fact, Josh Polk, Joshua Polk, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education, says that tiny homes can solve big problems when they're not being squished by big government. But see, that's the problem. There for some reason within the existing order, there is a great uh, reticence about allowing people to use their property and especially to to enjoy tiny homes. Joshua Polk says, in response to the 2008 recession, rising home prices and a growing demand for mobility and sustainability, new entrepreneurial movements have burst upon the housing market and tiny homes is probably the greatest example of it. Tiny homes are permanent living spaces usually running between 100 and 600 square feet. 100 square feet is pretty dang small, but offering relatively low-cost living, eco-friendly designs, and lifestyle flexibility, tiny homes have become a genuine phenomenon appealing to a wide range of customers. Adventure seekers, the environmentally conscious, and even people just hoping to downsize their life have flocked to tiny home builders hoping for their chance to live small. In fact, it's featured on HGTV's Tiny House Big Living and more recently, The Sims 4 video game, tiny home living has been pushed to the forefront of American pop culture, and the demand for tiny homes is growing. According to a survey by the National Association of Home Builders, more than half of Americans say they would consider living in a home that's less than 600 square feet. By the way, when you talk to millennials, that number goes even higher. And it's because tiny homes are also a potential low-cost solution to the homelessness crisis. But despite widespread popularity and potential, there is a bevy of obstacles to tiny home living. And it's state and local governments that have been slow to facilitate the burgeoning market, which has made living in tiny homes illegal in many places. 
Municipalities regulate housing based on minimum lot sizes and minimum dwelling sizes. So at around 400 square feet or less, tiny homes usually can't meet those requirements. And they defy easy classification as RVs, mobile homes, or backyard cottages. That difficulty has led to outright prohibitions in some places and legislative battles in others. In Maine, entrepreneur and engineer Corrine Watson makes her living building and selling tiny homes on wheels. But her ability to earn an honest living was put on hold when the government stopped providing titles and registration for tiny homes on wheels, making it harder for potential buyers to obtain financing. One of the reasons government took this action was an inability to adequately classify tiny homes. By the way, I think I think I will add an addendum here, uh, not just to classify, but to classify them for the purposes of taxation, because that seems to be a sticking point. And as Joshua Polk points out. More commonly, these governments have had the, the governments have labeled these tiny homes on wheels as RVs. And though tiny homes on wheels operate with the stability, stability rather, and roadworthiness of RVs and other types of trailers, they're different in important ways. See, unlike RVs or camp trailers, tiny homes are designed for permanent living. And they provide a full gamut of appliances and necessities. They're stick-built like traditional houses. Despite this, camping bans on RV living often prohibit long-term living in tiny houses as well. Now, while some localities have tried to facilitate tiny homes, these developments have been slow going and they're often ineffective. In fact, he says municipalities have legalized that have legalized tiny home living have maintained lot size restrictions that make tiny home production and placement impractical. For example, in Boulder, Colorado, 7000 square foot lot size minimums paired with a hard limit on the number of dwellings that may be placed on a single lot have diminished one of the primary appeals of tiny homes, that is, spreading the high cost of land across multiple dwellings. These restrictions have forced some homeowners to put their tiny homes in storage, along with their dreams of a minimalist lifestyle. Zoning regulations have even put a halt to efforts to use tiny homes as a living space for the homeless. In Minneapolis, a city where the homeless population has been ballooning for years, Housing advocates have hit one roadblock after another, ranging from overly restrictive land use ordinances to inapt camping bans. Now, while some cities like Spur, Texas, which have declared themselves havens for tiny homes by striking down barriers to tiny home building and placement, tiny homes still have a lot of obstacles to overcome. In addition to slow to modernize government regulations, tiny homes have faced pushback from activists concerned with the character of their neighborhoods. Who didn't see that one coming? Activists like these have pressured local government councils to bar tiny home living in their community. So it shouldn't come as a surprise that the government has failed to keep up with the tiny, the evolving tiny homes market. As economist Frederick Hayek warned, central planners simply cannot know enough quickly enough to respond efficiently to a swiftly evolving market involving thousands or millions of transactions. And the result is a gauntlet of ill-fitting regulations and counterproductive restrictions. Nowhere is this more evident than the forest of red tape surrounding tiny home living. Housing advocates and people wanting a downsized lifestyle have embraced tiny homes. But unfortunately, the tiny home market, thriving on dynamism and versatility, has to operate within a system marked by sluggish rigidity. If allowed to flourish, tiny homes could offer solutions to the housing crisis, rising costs of living, and population displacement. 
But before these benefits can be fully realized across the country, governments have to get out of the way of progress. This is from Joshua Polk, who is an attorney for the Pacific Legal Foundation. We'll touch on this just the other side of these messages. Do you have thoughts? 801-331-8113. This is Loving Liberty. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Join the conversation at 801-331-8113, unless you are listening to the podcast, in which case, sit back and enjoy. We've got this. So on the subject of tiny houses, here's the question that I have. What happens when we have our next major economic downturn? Now, I know that's, Brian, you're being so pessimistic. As if that's ever going to happen. Well, I remember uh, 2008 and 2009. Those were some pretty interesting years. And there were a lot of people who, uh, for for reasons, you know, besides just, well, they got careless with their money. Uh, but for reasons sometimes out of, that were beyond their control. They lost their homes. And I'm not talking about, well, people who lived on the edge. I'm talking about families just like yours and mine that... Uh, found themselves upside down and unable to stay in their homes, sometimes through lost employment or loss of a business. I don't know. All I'm saying is there was a pretty big ripple effect. It was ugly. I know it's been 12 years now, so our memories have faded. Everything's great, right? Stock market's been up, well, for the most part. <laughs> and it's going to be forever, right? From here on out, it is just smooth cheese. We are, we are set. But what happens when we have another major economic correction? I mean, look, even now, when ostensibly things are really, really great, what's the homeless situation like, uh, just for instance, in California? It's off the charts ridiculous. It's, it's like third world country ridiculous. Can something like these bans on tiny homes be considered reasonable in a time where there are people who are, you know, facing homelessness? Well, we make it illegal to live in your car, yes, and that helps the situation a lot. What are you going to do, throw them in jail? Great, the taxpayers will take care of you, as well as prevent you from having any possibility of bettering your situation. I may sound a little bit peeved, and it's just because I think that that not-in-my-backyard mentality is, is short-sighted in, in many ways. If anything is able to drive a stake through the heart of this, well, we want to preserve the character of our neighborhood mentality that is keeping tiny homes out of many different municipalities, some big, some small, this might be it. And I'm saying that with the understanding that it, it'll be of necessity. It'll be the kind of thing that will happen because... Because we really don't have a choice. Maybe we should, uh, I don't know, get our hearts squared away beforehand and stop being so intent on telling other people what they can and can't do with their property. Just a thought. One final commentary here. Um, You know how I can tell people who are serious about uh, what it takes to remain free? It's really quite simple. 
How can you tell when someone gets what it takes to remain free? For starters, they're actually grateful when they're called up for jury duty. There's a terrific article here from Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation, The Right of Trial by Jury. And he says one of the best things that our American ancestors did was include the right to trial by jury in the Bill of Rights. The Fifth Amendment states, in part, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial, an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. Now, he says, notice something important about this particular provision. It reflects that our American ancestors were convinced that the federal government would deprive them of this right if they didn't expressly protect it in the Bill of Rights. In other words, in the absence of an express provision guaranteeing this important procedural right, the federal government would run criminal trials like it does in Cuba by kangaroo military tribunal or where federal judges many of whom today are former federal prosecutors, would be determining the guilt of the accused. So Hornberger says, thus it's clear that while our American ancestors approved the Constitution which brought our federal government into existence, they still did not trust the U.S. government. They obviously viewed federal officials with extreme, extreme suspicion and concern, which is reflected by their demand that people who would be targeted by federal officials with criminal prosecution would be guaranteed the right to have their guilt or innocence determined by fellow citizens in the community rather than by some jaded and cynical pro-prosecution judge or by some kangaroo military tribunal. He says in the federal criminal trial that's being tried by jury, the federal judge instructs the jury that its job is to determine the facts in assessing whether to find the defendant guilty. And he also instructs them that they do not have the authority to judge the law that the defendant is being charged with violating. They do not have the authority, he tells them, to judge the law itself. It's a lie. In fact, the jury has the authority to judge both the facts and the law in determining the guilt or innocence of the accused. The jury has the authority to acquit a defendant for any reason it wants, including a determination that the law that the accused is charged with violating is a bad law. How I wish this was universally understood by everybody. And I'm not trying to make you feel any pressure here, so it's not me twisting your arm when I tell you this, but the people who I know most understand what it takes to be free get this. They are the kind of people you would want on your jury if you were facing trial. Jacob Hornberger actually gives a pretty cool, a pretty cool example here. He says in 1973 in his hometown of Laredo, Texas, there was a jury trial in federal court involving a Laredo man charged with possession of marijuana. The defendant took the witness stand and confessed his guilt. He said that he did it because he needed the money to support his wife and children. Now, the federal judge who was from Houston was a hard-nosed law and order judge who had a reputation for meeting out long jail sentences in drug cases. Thus, the jury knew that if they convicted the guy, he would end up serving a, a long term in a federal penitentiary. Even though the man had openly confessed his guilt, the judge was prohibited from simply issuing an instructed verdict, as judges are authorized to do in civil cases. Under the Constitution, the case had to be given to the jury, notwithstanding the fact that the facts were not in dispute. That's how powerful the right of trial by jury is. And the jury returned to the courtroom and announced its verdict. Not guilty. 
Now, the federal judge was angry and outraged, and he berated the jurors, telling them, you have destroyed the effect of the law and the result that the law is designed to achieve. He instructed the court clerk to remove their names from the jury pool list and told them they would never serve as jurors in his court again. But Jacob Hornberger says, notice something important. There was nothing the judge could do to alter that verdict, notwithstanding the fact that the defendant has openly confessed his crime. Once the jury returned with its verdict of acquittal, that was the end of the case. No matter how angry and outraged the judge was, he had to let that defendant walk out of the courtroom a free man. Moreover, he could not punish the jury with fine or imprisonment. They were free to go home, too. Now, I get not everybody's going to agree with the the verdict that they rendered. But can you see why the jury is such an important bulwark against tyranny? Jacob Hornberger says our American ancestors understood the importance of giving a jury in a criminal case full and complete authority to determine the guilt or innocence of the accused. They viewed the jury box as one of the bastions against tyranny. Suppose, for example, the government began rounding up Muslims or Jews and made it a criminal offense to hide them. So a person's caught violating the law. When that case comes to trial, the jury, which can reflect the conscience of the community, concludes that the law itself is tyrannical and returns with a not guilty verdict. The verdict cannot be used as precedent in other criminal prosecutions. But it sends a powerful message to the government, that message being, get rid of this tyrannical law. Now, Jacob Hornberger says some say that the Constitution has failed to constrain the American government. And he says they are right with respect to the welfare warfare state under which Americans now live. And they're also right with respect to the Pentagon and CIA's prison, torture and judicial center in Cuba. But when it comes to protecting the right of trial by jury here within the United States, in that case, the Constitution has worked remarkably well. So here's my challenge to you. I'll I'll put a link in the show notes for the Fully Informed Jury Association, FIJA.org. Now, it's not going to make you a radical or any kind of an anti-government extremist if you were to go on their website and just look at a more detailed explanation. Why is it that jurors have the right to judge not just the facts of the case, but the law itself? I'm absolutely convinced this is one of the most important things that any of us can do in maintaining government in its proper role. I think that it's something we should take very seriously. Actually, I'm encouraging you, check out FullyInformedJuryAssociation.org and then rejoice next time you're called up. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 